spoken by a thief Saying after what you've done You don't deserve to be free But I can look him in the eye Say this time you're wrong Cause guilty is a lie Mercy is a song We're singing oh, oh, oh. in the sky One day we'll be singing with those angels up on high That old familiar melody Like we've known it all along Our heaven is a mansion And mercy is a song Where well, heaven is a mansion And mercy is a song Oh tell me can you hear it As we, uh, before we get started here, I just want, just want us to be quiet for a moment. See if uh, there's anything that God wants to do before we get started here. So Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit to come. Just have the sense that there's somebody here who's dealing with some, um, some pretty severe back pain. Would that be anybody? Rich? Okay. John, you wanna?
So we want to, when God highlights something like this, we, we want to just go ahead and, and, and act on that because the fact that that's what came to my mind and now Rich has raised his hand, uh, pretty good indication that God wants to heal that. And so we want just to kind of pray. So Father, we just lift uh, this prayer time up to you. Just increase the anointing on John as he prays. Give you thanks, Lord. All right. So we're just going to let them pray, and we'll, we're just going to move on. So, everybody good today? Good to be inside? <laughs> yeah. As I, as I know some of you know, um, my poor daughter-in-law is supposed to give birth. She was supposed to give birth a week and a half ago. Uh, scheduled her to go in on Monday evening now. Jarrett is here, uh, but pretty good reason why she's not. Um, <laughs> can't imagine having to go through this kind of heat like that, but anyway. All right, so, anybody see a movie called The Walk? It was a movie that came out in, in 2015, and it w it's actually a true story about uh, a high-wire artist named Philip Petit. Now, you may have uh, recognized the name Philip Petit because in 1974, he fulfilled the dream that he'd always had. He actually walked a high wire between the World Trade Center towers. Got a picture of him doing that. Um, yeah, I don't know that there would be any amount of money <laughs> in the world <laughs> They could get me even up, you know, so anyway. But before that, before when he was, you know, be sort of beginning in his career, he was um, uh, working with a circus in France. And so his mentor was a man named Papa Rudy. And Papa Rudy would uh, let him travel around with the troupe of, uh, the circus troupe that uh, he was a part of. And he never performed in any of these circuses, but the advantage to him was that any time the, the big top tent was empty, he could go up and practice walking on the high wire. And so uh, in this scene that uh, I'm describing from the movie, he's on the high wire, he's right up underneath, you know, sort of the top of the tent. And he's, you know, he's walking on the wire and he's got the pole, so he's balancing himself. And Papa Rudy, who's his mentor, walks in and, and, and watches him up there. And... Uh, and he's, he's pretty confident, he's walking very deliberately and carefully across the wire. And um, he hesitates for a moment just as he's about, I don't know, a couple of steps away from the platform on the other side. And uh, at that point, he takes a much more assertive step. And uh, all of a sudden, he starts to shake, the wire starts to shake, and he falls. And he's able to grab onto the wire as he's going down pole hits the ground, um, and he just barely avoids falling to his death. And so he's hanging onto the wire with both hands. Obviously, he's a good distance off the ground. And finally, he, um, he manages to work his way back up onto the platform and climbs down the ladder. And um, he comes down, he's obviously breathing very heavily from all the exertion. And he comes down and there's his mentor, Papa Rudy, standing there. 
And Papa Rudy tells him this. He says, most wire walkers, they die when they arrive. They think they have arrived, but they're still on the wire. If you have three steps to do and you take those steps arrogantly, if you think you are invincible, then you're going to die. And I think that attitude of thinking that we have arrived can creep into our spiritual lives as well. And perhaps the place that it can become the most noticeable is the way that we speak to others. One would hope that our words as believers in Jesus would bring life and joy and peace to everybody that we encounter. But all too often our words bring hurt and condemnation and judgment. And of all the places where harsh words are uttered, <laughs> somehow the church always seems to be the most guilty. I guess that's where the phrase, there's no hurt like a church hurt, comes from. And so today we're going to see that James, in our study of the book of James, really tackles this issue head on. And in the process, he gives us some pretty compelling reasons why we ought to watch what we say, both in the church and outside of the church. So let's pray. So Father God, I just, uh, I just ask for your guidance and your wisdom to be a part of this message today. Uh, from what you've given me and anything else that you choose to add along the way, oh Lord, I just... Uh, submit it all to you. Pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, uh, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're in the midst of a study of James. We're getting close to the end now. We're in chapter 4. And we're going to look at just two verses today. This is James uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And so verse 11 uh, says this, if you want to follow along on a device, we've got it up on the screens for you as well. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You see, James was very much a student of the Old Testament. And uh, he very likely could have had in mind a passage from the book of Numbers when he wrote this. And in that particular passage from the book of Numbers, the people of Israel are complaining, which is something they kind of did somewhat frequently, but they're complaining about their situation and all their conditions, and this is after God has miraculously freed them from not one, not two, not three, but four hundred years of oppressive slavery. So they're free now, but they're still not real happy, okay? Numbers 21.4 says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, so this is also after God's been supplying them with manna for some untold number of days, weeks, months, or whatever. But, uh, of course, they're not happy. And, and the Greek word that James uses, which translates as uh, spoke against or spoke evil against, um, really refers to any form of speaking evil against a person. Now, the most obvious way that we might think of it would be slander. 
right? If you slander somebody, you um, verbally uh, demean them and damage their reputation. But the term that's used here is really a little bit broader than that. Um, it could include, let's just say that you're speaking the truth about a person, but it's still unkind. I don't know how that happened. Let's get back to where we were. Um, you might be spreading gossip about others. That's information that's true, but that other people have no business knowing. You could be questioning someone's authority who is in authority over you. Or you could be nullifying somebody's good work simply by backbiting, engaging in uh, that kind of, of speech. This is what hurts the unity and the harmony among believers. And this, the tense that's used in the Greek here uh, obviously reveals that this is not a new problem. This is something that's been going on for a while. And so the folks there were somewhat in the habit of criticizing each other. And the warning that he's giving here really, I think, grows out of the call that he gave for humility, for us to have humility in verses 7 and 10, the ones that we were looking at last week. Because in this instance, you clearly have Christian believers slandering other Christian believers. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters. And in the best possible meaning of that term. And for a Christian to malign another believer is a living contradiction of the close family ties that ought to bind us together. Not to mention the, the horrible example this kind of talk is to people who don't believe. All right, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, only God has the ability to enforce his laws and carry out his purposes. He does not allow us as human beings to share in this role. And so a slanderous Christian is one who in some respects attempts to play the role of God. And see, because we have this tendency to want to climb up on our moral high horse and ride off into the sunset, those of us who can follow Jesus could easily come to the conclusion that it's okay, that we're free to show critical attitudes towards those who do wrong. But the Bible's pretty explicit in its warning that we're supposed to leave the judgment to God because he's the only one that has the competence to accurately punish, to find out and punish those who break laws. And so our calling is to respond in supportive love, not in biting criticism. And so our main point today in... Uh, Try to break this down into fairly simple English. Don't badmouth people. <laughs> it's sort of what it comes down to, right? That's really what we're talking about here, is badmouthing people. And as Christians, we're not supposed to do that. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons why James sort of is trying to point this out. Um, first of all, when we badmouth people, it violates the law of love. 
right? In Mark 12.31, Jesus said that to love your neighbor as yourself was the second greatest commandment just behind completely loving God, you know, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this was not a new thought to Jesus because in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, it says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then later, when Jesus is asked by uh, one of the teachers of the law, who, well, who's my neighbor? Right? Looking for an out. That's what he was looking for. He's looking for, so, so put, some, put some definition on this, okay? Who can I still hate and be okay with God? It's kind of what he's saying, right? You know, if I, if all I have to, can I, just tell me I can love these people, but everybody else, it's fair game for my anger and whatever. Well, Jesus responds with what? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the moral of that story is what? That everybody is your neighbor, right? So there is no out. There is no group that you cannot love. So, when you badmouth somebody, you're disobeying this law because you're not showing love and you're not treating someone else as you would choose to be treated. And in your disobedience, you're showing disregard for the law and in, in effect, passing judgment on its validity. In other words, you're sort of putting yourself above it. You're sitting over the law, which is exactly what James is talking about here. You put yourself above the law. And so I'm thinking about this, and I thought, well, given that, that violating one of God's really important laws, which I would put the second greatest commandment as something that he feels is really important, and that, that that's generally not a good idea to do, how do we fix this? And I think a little self-examination uh, never hurts. And maybe taking a look at, well, how well am I doing at loving my neighbor as myself? It might be a good place to start, yes. So some questions that you could ask. Do I give myself the benefit of the doubt, but remain intolerant of others? Do I make excuses um, for my shortcomings, but refuse to do so for my brother or my sister? Do I judge my brothers and sisters according to the letter of the law while expecting grace for myself? After Judas left the Last Supper and Jesus was just with the remainder of his disciples, he, he told them this. This is from John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give you. Do I have that? Yes. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And how much did Jesus love you? Well, enough that he was willing to endure the cross for you. And in commanding us to love one another as he loved us, he's not asking that we die physically. 
what he's asking for, what he's, I'm saying this right. He's asking that we die to the need to feed our egos by bad-mouthing other people. Because that's essentially what we're doing. We're, gonna, we're tearing somebody else down so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. We've got to die to that. And the other important thing here, too, is that loving others is an act of evangelism. If you really take seriously what Jesus was talking about, because our, when we refuse to speak ill of someone else, it's evidence of the love that we're supposed to have for one another. Right? Because there are plenty of examples where there's people around that are going to notice whether you do that or not. And we've said this a lot of times before. People are always watching you. You know, especially if they know that you're a believer. They're watching they want to see how you act. Whether or not there's any validity to what you say you believe. So we have to be always on guard about what we're saying. Second thing is that bad-mouthing somebody else shoves God right off the judge's bench. So it's sort of like you climb up behind that big desk and you just push God <laughs> off to the side and say, I'll, I'll do it, I'll take it from here. I'm good. You see, don't we all sometimes wonder how even some of our fellow Christians can get away with an attitude or a behavior that's just not right? Doesn't that just really irritate you? But when we have those thoughts, do we ever stop and reflect on the sheer hypocrisy of thinking that way about another person while we conveniently disregard all of the awful, hurtful, sinful things that are in our own life. Is it not the height of arrogance to judge someone else? Because the right to judge belongs only to God. So the person who judges is assuming God's role effectively shoving him aside and taking his seat for ours. And so before we pass sentence on others, we really ought to look at the mirror of our own identity. And I think if we look, we're going to find that there's sin and shortcomings and guilt for the very failure that we often see in others and a very much so a personal need for God's grace and mercy. And I think if you really look at the scriptures, you would be hard-pressed to find an attitude in the Gospels that irritated Jesus more than people who were self-righteous. I mean, that, he got pretty ticked off at people who sort of adopted that attitude. In fact, in Matthew 7, 1 through 2, it says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you, you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. And Paul said essentially the same thing in Romans. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God's the only one who knows the truth about every one of us. And that is what makes him uniquely qualified to be judge. Right? One of the things that I've learned over the years in counseling people, and especially couples, is that that axiom about there always being two sides to a story is true. Right? That I can listen to one side of a story and be perfectly convinced that the other person is the scum of the earth until I listen to their side of the story. <laughs> and then it sort of evens out. And so I've learned never to take that position. Right? That you've got to understand that people are giving you their version of a story that makes them look good, or at least look better. Um, and something else that we've talked about here before, and we're going to look at a little bit in just a minute, but it's this idea that there are hurts and woundings in our lives that cause us to respond to things people say and do in ways that we're not even aware of. You know, somebody tells a little boy or a little girl that they're worthless, you know, when they're five, six, seven years old. And for their entire life, they grow up believing that lie. And so their first response to anything that challenges their worth is going to be to try to defend it. And sometimes that's where some of these prickly attitudes that we encounter in people come from. It's these deep woundings that have occurred somewhere else in their life. And so you really have, that's why, I, and God's the only one that knows. And so many times people are responding out of something that they're not even aware of. That's why God can be the only one who can properly judge us. Because like what Chip said earlier, God knows everything about us. You don't know everything about yourself, probably, much less anybody else. And so we cannot go around shoving God off the judge's bench. And then finally, I would say this. Bad-mouthing somebody meddles in their destiny. That's an interesting statement. But uh, I, I think for this point, I want to go back to something that James said earlier when he was discussing the tongue. This was back in chapter 3. Cha verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 says this, referring to the tongue. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so one of the ways that you can badmouth people is by cursing them. And when you curse somebody, you're definitely meddling in their destiny. Now, I will wager a guess that there are probably some people here today who are ready to dismiss whatever I'm about to say next. Because you think curses are something from medieval times or something that witches do in fairy tales. But I have to admit that I've always found it fascinating that the great majority of people who say that they believe in the Bible have no problem believing in angels 
yet they'll put their fingers in their ears if you start to talk about demons. La, 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 la. Don't want to hear that. Likewise, the very same people that will say bless you to anyone at the drop of a hat will put their fingers right back in their ears if you start to mention cursing or curses. But Scripture, which is our final authority, yes, pretty clearly tells us that cursing is just as real as blessing and, yet, and so this is yet another reason why we shouldn't be bad-mouthing other people. Now, we don't have time today for me to do an extensive study on cursing. There are books that have been written by people I really respect that you can go and find uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about it. Suffice it to say that some form of the word curse appears about 230 times in Scripture. Now the word bless or blessing, some variation of that, is about twice that, around 400 and sometimes. But the fact that those two words in combination occur some 600 times in Scripture tells us that they're somewhat significant. The thing is that both blessing and cursing belong to this invisible spiritual realm. They're vehicles of supernatural power. They are mysteries but that does not make them any less real. Blessing produces good fruit and beneficial results. Cursing produces bad and harmful results. And so I would, I would say this, that, that bad-mouthing can become cursing in a number of circumstances. Number one, if you're speaking as an authority figure to somebody a husband, a father, a mother, a boss, a pastor, any kind of leader, if you're in a position of authority, then you have the potential to curse somebody. For example, the one I just described as a, as a parent, telling the, their children that your children that they're stupid or hopeless or any one of a number of other things. And so often these things are born in a moment of frustration, right? But that, we, we can't, you can't go there. Because words have power. I don't necessarily understand exactly how it works. I said, I already said it was a mystery. I just know that there are folks out there that are still dealing with things that have been said to them when they were little because they've never been able to get past that. Um, I would say sometimes we can curse people if we don't pray for them correctly. And by that, what I mean is, we, when we pray, we can't be accusing people and we can't be trying to control or manipulate people. There's a reason, I believe, why in almost every instance in Scripture, Paul starts his prayers with, I thank God for, and then starts to list whoever it is that he's writing to. He's creating that positive atmosphere, that positive thought process so that he can then go on and not start to get into blaming and, and all that sort of thing. So we've got to avoid that. And then, I think self-cursing is a big problem, 
that a lot of people don't realize. The way that you speak about yourself can expose you to a lot of these conditions. You ever say stuff like, that's driving me crazy. I just can't take it anymore. It makes me mad to think, right? Say you're dealing, you have a problem with chronic illnesses. And so the, you say things like, well, I, I, whenever there's a bug, I just seem to catch it. Or it runs in the family, so I guess I'm next. You know, marital problems. My friend always said that my husband was going to leave me. Somehow I always knew that my wife was going to find somebody else. In our family, we've always fought like cats and dogs. See what's happening? Financial insufficiency. If you say things like, well, I can never make ends meet. I can't afford to tithe. I hate those fat cats who always get everything they want. Being accident prone. Stuff like that always happens to me. I'm just clumsy. What about suicide or unnatural or untimely deaths? What's the use of living over my dead body? I'd rather die than go on the way I am. See, people who use this kind of negative language are unconsciously inviting those things to happen. And like I said, I, I wish I could explain them in great detail. I can't. But I just, I know they're true and scripture bears that out. So here's what I want you to do this week. Make a conscious, conscious effort to change the way that you talk about others and about yourself. Make a conscious effort to change the way that you talk about others and about yourself. Begin to try and catch yourself saying those sorts of things, whether it's referring to yourself, a loved one, someone at work. Lindsay's got a great story about this. Um, I'm not going to go into it now, but it involved her father. Um, do you mind me, Sharon? Okay. Um, anyway, without getting into a lot of the d details, when she started, her, she, there were some issues between her and her dad. Just leave it at that. And when she started to pray positively for him, rather than dwell on the negative, a substantial and significant change occurred in their relationship. Right? Still there, I'm assuming? That's what I mean. This stuff is, I mean, I'm not saying this because I just think it's interesting to say, but these kinds of things can make a difference, right? So in effect, what she did was she went from cursing to blessing. And once she did, this change was rather startling. And I guess you wouldn't mind people asking you about that if they were curious. Um, so, make a conscious effort to change the way that you talk about others. 
It will make a difference. So to kind of, so just to conclude this, you guys can come up. Um, it was the habit of uh, one particular grandmother to tell her grandsons a, a Bible story at bedtime. So one night, she has them both in bed, and uh, she says, tonight we're going to talk about sin. Do you know what the word sin means? Well, seven-year-old Keith spoke up and said, it's when you do something bad. Well, at this point, four-year-old Aaron's eyes got really big, and he said, I know a big sin Keith did today. <laughs> so, somewhat annoyed, Keith turns to his younger brother and said, you take care of your sins, and I'll take care of mine. <laughs> and I think James would applaud Keith's assessment of that situation, even if Keith was a little bit motiv motivated by self-preservation, probably, in that instance, right? Not, not one of us should ever think that we've arrived in the Christian life and, and somehow feel it's our duty to now speak out against or badmouth somebody else. None of us have arrived. None of us ever will arrive until, until heaven, right? And so what I felt like God wanted to do today uh, involves this issue of, of blessing and cursing. And if you are um, aware of something that was said to you somewhere in your life that, that you think you're still sort of dealing with the after effects of, something that was effectively a curse, something along, you know, could be anything. Somebody that said, um, worthless, you're hopeless, you're stupid, you're never going to amount to anything. Anything like that. And that's something that you either know or you have a sense that you're still dealing with. I want to, I want our team to come up I want to break that off of you today. Amen. God can take care of that. Amen. And you shouldn't continue to go around dealing with that, with, with what is effectively a lie. You were told a lie, and you've been believing a lie. So, John, you want to come up? Donna? So while we pray for this, we're, the uh, team is going to play, and we're just going to worship for a few more minutes, and then we'll do a, a, a dismissal. And if there's still people that need prayer, you're free to continue to come up. But um, So now just encounter God in your own way, whether it is through prayer, whether it's through worship, uh, whatever it may be. I just invite you to connect uh, with God on some level now. So if there's something in your life that you feel like you're still dealing with that is in regard, is, is like this, and I just ask or, or invite, really, you to come up and uh, let's pray about it.
something like that, then ask God to reveal it to you. Take this time now to ask the Lord to reveal to you if there is something like that in your life. Thank you. 
God, I thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for all these people that have gathered here. Lord, I just pray your blessings on them now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you would just, that you would touch them. such a way that their life would never be the same. Send your Holy Spirit to so fill them that they just are full of your joy and your love. Bless them as they go forth from this place into a world that needs someone is full of your spirit. Let them be a light in the darkness to all of those that they will encounter. Just give you thanks, Lord. Lift this prayer up to you now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You're welcome to stay. If you need to leave, that's fine. But you also stay as long as you like and worship. We hope to see you again soon. God bless.